One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When we say something is nano, we do, of course, mean that it's very small. One nanometer is one billionth, crikey, of a meter, which is not very big, which is about 100,000 times smaller than the thickness of a single strand of hair, depending, of course, on how thick your hair is. It's not very much. So making new things, stuff, at this incredibly small scale is very difficult. We call it nanotechnology, and it's a really diverse field that's part of our everyday lives now in ways that we don't even realise. Nanotechnology is used in industries such as well, everyday tech to build things like laptops. It's in the fabric of our clothes for stain-repellent coatings. We even use it in sports for high-strength, lightweight equipment. In everything. Nanotechnology kind of burst onto the scene in the 90s with major nanotech discoveries such as carbon nanotubes, which you may have heard about. And by the end of the millennium, there were fears over where this was all heading, most famously encapsulated when... Then Prince Charles, our now king, got all hot and bothered about the dreaded grey goo, more of which later. Hello and welcome to Patented, a podcast all about the history of inventions with me, Dallas Campbell. Now, in this episode, it's a little different to others because not only are we talking about the invention of nanotechnology, what it is, but we're asking broader questions about the responsibility of technology and research. It's a truly fascinating topic. I am joined by the very excellent Dr. Suze Kundu. She's a nanochemist who studied artificial photosynthesis and teaching for six years at Imperial College in London and Surrey University before moving to work as the Director of Research and Community Engagement at Digital Science, amongst other things. She's brilliant, as you may know. And she joins me now to discuss everything about nanotech, its history, how we're using it now, and what's it going to be like in the future. Before we started recording, we were discussing responsible research, and I think that's really interesting. What is responsible research? Oh, I mean, that's too big a challenge. There's a fear around nanotech, and I presume that will come up. And there's always a fear about anything that we do, even the things that are most innocuous. Plastics, for example, with this wonder material. But we messed that up because we didn't really think it through. And so being more responsible about how we apply things, about how considerately we forge ahead in research, including things like AI at the moment, we're having to be very careful, but it's a sort of global effort. Is that because the technology itself needs responsibility because it's, in inverted commas, potentially dangerous? Because I always think there is that human thing that anything new that comes along, we naturally have that kind of moral panic or that fear or oh my God, it's new, therefore I must fear it. And then because we talk about it a lot, we sort of amplify that fear and it becomes a big thing. I mean, AI, exactly as you say, is the kind of classic fear du jour. I counter it a little bit. I think we are naturally excited over fearful initially. Yeah. And I think maybe we jump the gun a bit. We get ahead of ourselves. We 
want to use whatever the new thing is for absolutely everything. And then there's the panic. And I also think, I mean, not that we'll cover this, but I do feel that these days, not that I like it, but you have to have a camp that you choose to sit in. You have to be for or against something. Or if you're for something, then the implication is you're against something else, which is not true. And so I think there's a sort of a politicization of most opinions these days, which really frustrates me. <laughs> oh, me too. Honestly, Suze, it drives me around the bend. Yeah. You're exactly right. And I suppose I don't really think about it as much as in terms of science because I'm not doing research. But do you notice that in science? If you say one thing about research, then people sort of jump on you because why have we become so binary? Why can't we hold two different things? Maybe it's social media. I don't know. I think it is. I think a, a huge part of it is social media. You cannot tweet something or other social media, but you can't share anything even along the lines of, God, this apple was great. Are you saying you don't like pears? Why don't you like pears? You're really pearist. And you think, yeah. no, shouldn't be the way. I do think social media has a lot to answer for, but it's also a place for a lot of good as well. Community building, yeah, people so. finding people outside of their own silos, collaboration. I find it quite stressful. I only ever post something that I think's funny-ish and that's kind of it. I don't I don't I don't get involved in all the <laughs> my skin's too thin. That's the problem. I just I can't take the backlash. It just I get really upset. There are certain subjects, especially if it was five years ago, you know, in the kind of Brexit melee. Mm-hmm. Like the kind of wars that I don't mind were like the blur oasis wars of the mid nineties. That's the sort of <laughs> conflict I can deal with. Yeah. But then when yeah. it comes to Brexit and all that kind of stuff, then I'm just like, I have opinions. I'm just not going to voice them because there's no winners in the culture war. Just while we're on the subject of responsible research. So AI, everyone's talking about AI and chat GPT and everyone's freaking out because it's this great, potentially great revolutionary technology that's going to be miraculous and chaotic all at the same time. But I remembered sort of nanotech a few years ago, a bit worried about the nanotech people like you because you're being slightly overshadowed by the AI people. Like, because I remember nanotech was <laughs> going to be the big, terrible thing. And we were going to get swallowed by grey goo. Yeah. I, I can't remember what grey goo was. Do you remember that? Like, Prince Charles was like freaking out, or the King Charles now. King Charles, goodness, yes. Things do move on very quickly. I think people do get scared of stuff. There was a reason, I think, to be scared of something like nanotech and the so-called grey goo, this unknown matter. Ultimately, nanomaterials are defined by their dimensions. So in one or more of their dimensions, they fall within the nanometer range, which is a billionth of a meter. And because of that, nanomaterials are able to do things that macro materials are not able to do, things that are on the larger scale. Because they are working at a scale that is on the same scale as cells, for example, there is the worry and the fear, and rightly so in some cases, that there could be some sort of interaction or involvement between that nanomaterial and our human living cells and lots of other things around us as well. And the potential for that to cause chaos and damage can be quite high. Now, a very tangible example of this would be asbestos. So asbestos is this amazing kind of fibrous glass-like Love material. It. It's a fantastic it. insulator, but when it isn't used properly, when it powders up, it gets into these teeny tiny fine particles and it really can cause horrible, horrible diseases and illnesses in it. people that may have inhaled it. <laughs> I'm just being flippant and, and jocular. <laughs> yeah. And so that's a challenge. You know, it's a wonder material, but people have an absolute right to be quite concerned about its use, about its prevalence, about how to get rid of it and find a better alternative, you know, that that won't be as problematic. And so I think with AI at the moment, we're just trying to work things out. There is a fear and there should always be, I don't know if fear is the right word, but we should be considerate about how we use and apply things, but also don't shy away from the potential of things as well. So this idea of making things small, what's the point? Like, what is the benefit of going, here's the thing, I know, let's make it really small. It's not so much about making big things small, but really what it is, is about 
tweaking things on the nanoscale. So a nanomaterial is any material that exists in one dimension, at least within a kind of billionth to a few hundred billionths of a meter. So it's 10 to the minus nine meters. It's really, really small. So you can't see it with the naked eye. But what you can do is experience the difference that a change on that level can make to a particular material. And is this a quantum thing? Are we kind of halfway between quantum and our world, if you like? Yeah, it's exactly that. So at that very tiny scale, classical mechanics slightly starts to fall apart as other forces become more prevalent. So a little bit of static force, for example, if I rubbed a balloon on my head and held it over here, I would not be attracted to the balloon significantly because other forces are taking over. And you will have seen this with things like dust filings and stuff, or if you're emptying your hoover, static forces can take far more control over those things because of the relative size and the relative um, force that is involved. So on that very small scale, classical mechanics starts to fall apart, quantum mechanics starts to take over. What we can do is utilise the quirkiness of that and the difference in the effect that is displayed on that small scale and start to scale that up to solve a range of different challenges. So for example, the way that materials interact with one another or the way that we're able to capture solar energy, for example. Because all of these things do operate on a much smaller scale, the wavelengths of light, for example, are within the hundreds of nanometers scale. And so that's why we're able to start interacting with different things on that scale in order to really start to address some of our major global challenges. At the small scale, things behave wacky and it's that wackiness that is beneficial. What's happening at the nanoscale that makes a solar panel better than if it was a big solar panel? No. If you, <laughs> well, it's less about the size of the panel and more the dimensions of the microstructures, the dimensions at which you're looking at or the scale at which you're tweaking things. So I used to work on solar energy conversion splitting water using sunlight to make hydrogen. And the reason that we have to work on that nanocrystalline scale is purely because of the fact that we are interacting with wavelengths of light. And so you're talking about the sort of hundreds of nanometer range. If you start to tweak things, add impurities, what's happening is that the energy that's coming from the sun is hitting this material and it's exciting an electron. So it's a photo-generated electron and it's pushing it into a state at which it can do things. It's a kind of active state. It can go on and perform a range of different reactions and things. If we can tweak it so that the material is able to gather more of those photons to create more photogenerated electrons, that's great because you're increasing the efficiency. If we're able to engineer on that small scale a way that we can separate the different charged species, because if you photogenerate an electron, you're leaving behind a hole of negativity. And we know that negative and positive things naturally want to come back together. If we can engineer structures on that material that prevent that from happening, that can whip away the electron and that subsequent hole that's been left, you're able to then increase the efficiency even more. And so if the ultimate goal of that electron is to go and perform a particular reaction that can you know, reduce water to, to make hydrogen, great, because you're making more of it. And so we're able to solve a problem. But if you're unable to engineer on that tiny scale, then you're not really able to fine tune things as much as you would like to do. And so that's where the opportunity lies, that we're working almost on this kind of molecular and very small structural scale in order to give rise to materials that have quite different properties on the macro scale. When you say engineered, do you mean, is it like kind of two test tubes mixing together or is it like a tiny scalpel? Like, paint a picture for us of what engineering is like on that scale. Engineering in this situation, particularly around this kind of nanomaterial technology, you can call it kind of surface engineering. It is very much surface chemistry, but you are using chemistry to create specific things. You can, however, physically work on that scale as well, depending on the equipment that you're using. So atomic force microscopy, for example, will allow you to create substrates that have particular patterns. Okay. So I've got my head around a very small screwdriver that I use to fix my glasses. So from that to atomic microscopy, what's, what is it? Even smaller. It's not 
dissimilar, actually. It's almost like a, a tiny, a tiny chisel, a sort of tiny little thing that you can either use to drag along a surface gently to understand the topology of a surface on the atomic scale. But you can also use those kinds of technologies that we use for analysis as well to actually create and engineer different surfaces, different structures on that really small scale. A little bit like a little chisel. You can go along and you can start to create patterns and all kinds of things, depending on what you want to do. And the reason that's exciting then is because if you combine it with the chemistry, with the physics, with the engineering, if you create a pattern surface and add some chemicals onto it, they are going to grow differently or adhere differently to the way that they would on a completely flat surface. And so you're able to then start to create microstructures that can build at that scale that might go on to harvest light better, for example, for a solar panel. That's a good example. Solar panel, that's going to be great because we can generate lots of clean electricity and make hydrogen and that's all great. What are the other kind of benefits? What are the big miraculous things that are going to change because we've got a grip on nanotech? I think things like the climate crisis are great examples to use. So I've heard of that. potable water is becoming scarcer and scarcer. And that's a problem, especially for people in the global south, for example. There are nanofiltration devices that are being created that are able to filter water for people. So even though they may not have access to clean running water, particularly close by, they're able to still survive because everybody should have that basic human right of having clean water. You can think about it along the lines of coatings for buildings as well. So if you're able to engineer it so that, and this does exist, you have some quite clever glass called K-glass made by Pilkington. And it's engineered in such a way that the different layers have entirely transparent nanomaterials that have been deposited onto them. And so on a very sunny day, the light will come in, but the heat will be blocked out. So you're not having to use lots and lots of energy to try and keep your room cool. But on a cold day, it will let the heat in and insulate it and trap it. And so it is not clever or sentient in any way, but it's been engineered so that the materials are able to reflect or transmit different wavelengths of light in different situations. And so in doing so, you're increasing the efficiency of your home. You're increasing the warmth in your home, but you're keeping it cool when you need to. You're reducing the amount that you're going to need to use air conditioning systems and all of that, which as the world is getting warmer and warmer, these are things we're all suffering with. Even here in the UK, we've had a few horrible months, haven't we? What about things like medicine? Is that nano ready? Very much. Actually, one of my favourite stories around kind of nano medical devices involves cage structures of molecules. So we'll take carbon, for example. Carbon is an atom, it's an element, but it can exist in lots and lots of different forms depending on how the different carbons are joined up together. So you get everything from the graphite in a pencil all the way through to diamond. Vantablack. Vantablack, I've exactly. got some. I've got my little oh, Vantablack. I'm quite jealous. I meant to have given it back. They gave it to me oh. ages ago, 10 years ago, <laughs> when it first came out. And they're like, for That's God's amazing. sake, send it back. Oh, it's so cool. But they've gone darker and darker since then. They just absorb everything now. Those pigments really? are incredible. Oh, yes. Terrifying, they say. So carbon, including Vantablack, yeah, you can do lots of different things with carbon. So on the nano scale, you can create a, a range of different structures and they can be tubes like your carbon nanotubes and they can be woven, they can be of different lengths. But you also get these nano footballs, these cage-like structures, very much like a football. Are they called like buckyballs or something? Is that they what they are called, called buckyballs. Bucky I remember this yeah. from something. What did, so bucky as in from Buckminster Fuller. Buckminster Fuller. He of the geodesic Indeed. dome. The geodesic dome. See, it all it all comes uh, together. And so it is a beautifully, perfectly engineered structure. It is very much like a football made up of the pentagons and hexagons that you would see on a traditional football. And they're just these cages. And the people that first discovered these, Harry Croto, for example, was a brilliant you know, British scientist. At the time, everyone went, well, that's fine, but no idea what to do with it. So the research was kind of left on the shelf as a bit of a curiosity, nobody knew what to do. Harry Croto's career was really interesting because he then, because it was such blue skies research and couldn't demonstrate the impact of it, 
he then had to kind of travel around. I think he ended up in Florida or something doing his research out there because he just had to keep moving to find ways that he could work. Nobody understood the value of what they'd created or discovered at the time. Now, it's only decades later that we're looking at these cage structures and going, well, hang on a minute. A cage means that we can put something in it. We can put markers around it. And so what these structures are now being used for is very targeted drug delivery. So you can put a medicine inside the structure and little markers around the outside that correspond to specific cells or specific materials in a body. And so if, for example, you're trying to treat cancer, you want to only treat the cancerous cells. But at the moment, the types of treatment that we use, they treat every cell, whether good or bad, in exactly the same way. So chemotherapy and radiotherapy are really tough on people. They just blast every cell in exactly the same way, entirely indiscriminately. And that means that the patient has all of that time to kind of recover from that as well, because it is weakening them just by the sheer force of what is going on with their cells. But if we're able to create these targeted drug delivery vessels, these can be set off into the body and the markers correspond to just the cells where they're required. They latch on, open out, and they deliver the drug exactly where it's needed. And that means that the patient is then not so run down the whole time when they're already dealing with a bunch of other stuff. That's exciting. Is this what we call nanobots? Just I'm confused about the terminology. So I understand the kind of ball thing. I don't really understand it, but I'm kind of pretending I understand it. I mean, I do, but I don't quite understand how the ball knows where to go. Well, it is set off in the body. And then if you can attach markers, a little bit like jigsaw puzzle pieces on the outside of Uh, this uh, this cage structure, then once they reach exactly where they need to be, they kind of lock on. And then you can engineer it so that something will happen, so that they will open out, the drug is deposited. These aren't necessarily what you would consider nanobots. If we think about robots, for example, it's that element of doing a task, some level of automation. You know, they have one mission. Like Tom Cruise. And so I suppose a little bit, a little bit, though his was impossible. He's quite small, Tom Cruise, but he's probably above the nano scale. I don't think he's nano. He's close. Oh gosh, are we going to get sued? That's retracted. (laughs) Anyway, what were we talking about? <laughs> oh, nanobots. nanobots. Nanobots, sorry, yes. So I feel that, you know, nanobots or nanorobots are more along the lines of things that can perform specific tasks. So when people think about nanobots, they do imagine these tiny machines. And I think that was the original, you know, science fiction to science fact dream that people had about these nanostructures, these nanomaterials that could do things on that small scale. I wouldn't say that the targeted drug delivery is necessarily a nanobot, but I imagine what we will end up with, and we do in some ways have these already, are things that can do a specific task or create a specific thing. The dream goal, I mean, looking back to sort of Drexler's research back in the 1980s. It's a total Bond baddie name, like Drexler and Croto. Solid names. I do feel if you're going to have a scientific breakthrough, you really need to sort the name first. Well, Kundu's good. Do you think? It yeah. makes me think of the West Wing. But yeah. Really? Yeah. It's not Drexler. Drexler, Drexler. that'll be played by kind of Stephen Burkoff character, maybe someone like that. Gosh, I imagine in- Christian Bale. Well, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I could say. Eric Sorry. Drexler. Anyway. No, no, this is what happens when we speak. <laughs> Can I just ask, actually, just while we're on Drexler and Croto, are they the kind of the Mac daddies of nanotech? If we said, like, who invented nanotech? Does the name Drexler or Croto come up or do we not have a name? Or is it Richard Feynman? We have to talk about Richard Feynman as well. Well, we do need to. I think a lot of it. The main gauntlet was thrown down, I think, by Richard Feynman. We're back in, I think, 1959. He was giving a series of lectures and papers where he he wanted to kind of throw this challenge out there that we're constantly thinking bigger and bigger and bigger. But he postulated that there is plenty more room at the bottom. He created this idea of having tiny machines, things that are smaller than we can see, smaller than we can currently make sense of. And he sort of set out this challenge for people to explore in a kind of artistic and scientific way to see what can be done. So I think, yes, Feynman probably started it, but nanotech has existed for decades and centuries and maybe even longer We just haven't called it that. We haven't really considered it to be that. Step back in time with me, Tristan Hughes, on the Ancients from History hit 
as we unearth Pompeii's buried secrets in a special mini-series. You'll discover what life was like in this town before the eruption of Vesuvius, the bustling streets, the roar of the gladiators, and the hidden lives of sex workers. Lost for over 1,500 years and then uncovered, Pompeii's saga continues. With the help of leading experts, we'll bust myths and reveal startling new research. So get ready for a dramatic journey through the echoes of the past. Experience Pompeii like never before on the Ancients from History hit. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Whenever I do these things and I ask about the origins of things, they just say, oh, we have to go back to the ancient Greeks or something. Is there a kind of ancient Greek or proto version of nanotech that we can say, yes, this was nanotech? There's certainly evidence of it in artifacts and, and historic pieces that we can see. So you can head to the libraries in London and encounter a, a bunch of them and hopefully other places as well, because let's not be too London-centric. No, let's be massively London-centric. London's <laughs> the only place that exists. <laughs> so when you look back at history, you may be looking at something that has absolutely nothing to do with science. For example, the Lycurgus Cup, I think is in the British Museum. Like who? The Lycurgus Cup. What's the Lycurgus and Cup? I have no idea what that is. It's this beautiful kind of glass vessel with a metal frame around it. And the metal frame is not the exciting part here. The glass itself is because if there is light shining on the cup, it looks one colour. But if light is shining through the cup, it looks a different colour. And so if you were to have this on your, I don't know, ancient windowsill back in the day, the cup would effectively change colour as the day went on, depending on where the sun was in relative position to the cup. And nobody really knew why for a long time, but investigation has shown that there are tiny, in the nanometer range, particles of gold and silver within this, this glass. And back in the day, it would have required such fine milling to get any kind of metal to be as fine as that in those kinds of dimensions that they can interact with the wavelengths of light in the way that they do. So it was a deliberate thing. Like someone thought, okay, I'm going to grind up some gold and silver and put it in the glass. It's going to look awesome. Yeah. Or so they obviously tried it on other things. Well, I mean, I got a pattern from a weekend mistake where I mixed Did something you? with something else. Yeah, yeah. It was purely around the fact that you can create these little islands of stability on the nanoscale. And it was purely because I had left a substrate in a solution 
from Friday to Monday. I'd meant to wash it up. That's classic invention. That's like penicillin. And, and what did you find? What Less did you successful find? version of that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Unfortunately, my substrate did bugger all. But <laughs> what happened? No, it was amazing. And so what that does is um, I came back and it was a sort of a bright green colour and I didn't know why. But me being me, being the kind of ever curious person that I am, kind of went, well, I won't bin it. Let's see what it does. And so I had a look at it, did a bunch of materials characterization on it and discovered that what had been deposited on the substrate were these small islands of metal that were protruding from the main substrate, which meant that when you've got that photo generated charge species, that the electron, rather than kind of running back to its counterpart positive hole, it was able to be captured by the little islands of stability and conduct through the material to where it's needed to perform the reaction that I wanted it to perform. And so it massively increased the efficiency of the solar conversion that I was doing. I'm nodding like I'm pretending I understand, (laughs) but I don't. So it's green. Picture this. So you have got, let's say they look like tiny magnets floating around on this surface of a substrate. The sun comes in like a massive football. So a photon of light comes in and bashes this magnet. So you've got a negative and a positive that fall apart. And their tendency would be to stick back together quite quickly. But if you've got something that can attract that little negative bit of the magnet and move it out of the way, they can't recombine. And so the reduction in the recombination increases the efficiency because that negative bit, that negative part of the magnet, is the thing that drives the reaction. And this is what these islands were doing. So rather than a flat substrate, it was just a kind of opportunity to go, I'll have you. Thank you. Does it have a kind of use? Yeah, just massively increasing efficiency. You can't okay. plug it in, but you can incorporate it into um, into other photocatalytic structures. When I was a kid, I used to enjoy getting bits of blue tack yes. and sellotape and you press it against print in a book and then you pull it off and you get the print on the bit of blue tack or sellotape. I used to do that because I was bored in school. And then someone bloody won the Nobel Prize for doing that. They got some sellotape and put it on some pencil yes. and pulled it off and go, look, the pencil comes off on the sellotape and won a Nobel Prize for graphene. And I'm like, wait a second, I used to do that when I was at school. So how come they got the Nobel Prize? They got the Nobel Prize. Andre Geim did get the Nobel Prize, but he also got the Ig Nobel Prize as well a few years before that. So the Ig Nobel Prize is this gorgeous thing where people are rewarded for doing what is deemed to be slightly ridiculous avant-garde research. And he won the Ig Nobel for levitating frogs. Frog, I remember this. Yeah. So I feel that your blue tack experiment, demonstration, it's just, again, you've done it again, really. It's being ahead of your time, I think is the problem. It is. Just explain this idea of graphene. So again, we've talked about these little footballs, we've talked about carbon nanotubes and these bits of carbon in different shapes that do wonderful things. Graphene, which is, am I right in saying that it's kind of an atom thick layer of carbon? Why is that good? Like what, what can I do with my atom layer of carbon? Yeah. So these monoatomic layers in a pencil, everyone has a bit of graphene. So graphite is lots and lots of carbons and each carbon is joined to, you know, three other carbons and they create these sheets of hexagons effectively. Now that's exciting because what they do when you're using it as a pencil is the sheets rub past one another. They can fall apart quite easily. And that's how you deposit pencil markings onto paper. But if you're able to separate just one of these layers off, you are left with a material that is so incredibly stable and so incredibly strong for its weight that you can do a whole host of new things with it. So a single kind of sheet of graphene is so strong, so light. And while you may not be able to use it independently necessarily, because it's quite difficult to use things on that kind of scale, you are able to incorporate them into a range of things. You can bring them into devices. We talked about nanofiltration devices, for example. You can punch holes into the graphene that are of appropriate shape and size that you can very subjectively allow certain molecules through, but not let other molecules through. So great if you want to just filter water. But you're also able to use these for a range of reinforcement devices, graphene and carbon nanotubes more specifically. If you start to roll these 
sheets around each other and get tubes that you can weave together, that you can incorporate into other maybe less robust materials. You're able to introduce strength without introducing the bulk, the density of a very heavy material. So where we would have used something like steel for reinforcement, we're able to use carbon nanotubes. Why does that matter? And why would we want to use carbon nanotubes and graphene? It's all about efficiency. If we think about sustainability, what we want to do is use the resources that we have more efficiently. And if lugging around things that are much denser and heavier is going to cost us more energy, more money, more time, more effort, that's not great. If you think about, and I know this is something that you love, but if we think about space, for example, getting anything into space costs, you know, tens of thousands of pounds and dollars per kilogram. So if we can start to replace components in that with much lighter materials that are just as strong, but are much, much lighter, that can even be manipulated to perform specific things. You can get, you know, shape memory materials, for example, that can be used in solar panels that you can send up into space, all folded up a little bit like a pop-up tent. And then once you get there, you can either introduce a little bit of electricity or a change in heat. And these nanomaterials will unfurl in a very specific way. So you've been able to send something into space that's much lighter, that's packed much smaller for cheaper, but you're able to do good things with it because you can manipulate it. Well, obviously what we do in space, people people who go, oh, space, it's just Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos mucking about. I'm like, no, no, no. All civilization pretty much is now utterly dependent on what we do in low Earth orbit and everything from banking to monitoring climate change to everything else. And that, as you say, because things have got smaller, like satellites that used to be the size of a car. Oh, bigger, yeah. And now the size of a, Little you know, my, my coffee mug. sats and things. Yeah. yeah. It's incredible. And actually, that's an th- interesting thing you mentioned there, this idea of materials that can change shape. Where are we with that? Like, what's, So you say you put a little bit of electricity in and suddenly we're not constrained now by just the shape things used to be. We can do... We can just do anything. Oh, we're not constrained at all. These are far more common than you realise. Half the population will remember these things called underwired bras from before the pandemic. I remember those. They've fallen out of favour since then because everybody's given up on them. Yes. Underwear designed by the patriarchy, yes. So traditionally, underwiring and the, the wiring in an underwired bra was made of this kind of shape memory metal because you want to be able to wear it, you want to throw it in the washing machine. And what you want to do is make sure that it, retains its shape. And so they're a form of shape memory metal in that they can be bent out of place, but they will kind of go back back. at the right temperature. Yeah, You even see it in things like stenting. So stenting of arteries, for example, a little incision is made down in somebody's sort of groin area and a small bit of metal travels up into where it needs to be. And once it's in place, it pops open. So you don't have this huge tube traveling through your arteries. You have a very small compact thing. And then exactly where it's required, it pops out into place and it props the artery open, relieving people's symptoms. So we do use these things reasonably often already. We get used to things very, very quickly. Yes. We're surprised by things. You go, oh, look, something new. Look, Twitter's turned into X. And then after after we stop moaning, then sort of five minutes later, it's just the way things used to be. I mean, we're talking about scale. I think it is just the scale of the discovery. Back in sort of the 1905 era, discoveries were massive, just massive, groundbreaking, fundamental things. And I think then the impact of those things was more tangible for people. Whereas I think now when we make a novel discovery, The impact is massively far-reaching when we think about even artificial intelligence and, you know, large language models and things like that. We're thinking about it as a concept, but we're not thinking about the impact of it. But artificial intelligence can revolutionize how we do all kinds of research and discovery just by making connections that we couldn't necessarily see before. And I think that's really exciting, but harder for people to see the impact of. I think we do maybe have a responsibility as scientists and as people that work within science communication to be better at telling the stories about the people doing the research. Yes, I agree. So it's more relatable, so we can build trust, so we can understand that the people working on it are the people that are doing it for the right reasons and that represent us. And I think we also need to be better at sharing genuine human impact and not sensationalizing things. That aspartame 
story recently really bothered me that, you know, aspartame is terrible or aspartame. aspartame I don't know how to pronounce aspartame, it aspartame, yes, aspartame, as in Diet Coke. As in Diet Coke, you know, Diet Coke is terrible. All diet drinks are terrible. But if you dive into the details, it's not true. We have a real issue with trust and integrity, I think, in research. Yeah. Thank you for bringing this up. I think it's really important. We have a massive issue with trust and we have a massive issue with newspapers want to sell newspapers and big headlines sell newspapers and that's what grabs people's attention. But the trust is a big one. You know, the general public, me, non-scientists, we get our information about the world from people we trust and whose values we share. And if all you hear is information coming from people that values you don't share, whether it's governments or scientists, institutions that once we all had in common, but now suddenly we mistrust the media, we mistrust government. I don't mean party governments, I mean governments generally. Mm-hmm. We're kind of screwed. And I don't know how we build that trust yes. back across those lines where once where once there was trust, at least in the idea of the institution, which seems to have been eroded a lot at the moment. Now, I know you work at the Royal Institution and, and, and you know, you're one of the great science communicators. Because also people don't like being told what to think. And people don't like being told off. And people don't like, there's too much stick and not enough carrot. How do we, how do we build that trust? So this is really interesting. So I don't work for the RI, but I am a trustee of the Royal Institution. Love it. They trust you. <laughs> they trust me. <laughs> it's terrifying. It's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. It has its place in the history of not just science, but I would say it's a sort of cathedral for science communication, really, because that is one of the things I think we need to do. So where I work at Digital Science, we actually have just launched a campaign on trust and integrity in and with research. And this is important. You talk about a real disengagement, uh, a tendency for us to lean towards confirmation bias for the things that we read, where we're picking up news, for example, the people that we trust may not be representing the things that we need to know about in the most non-biased way. And so I think what we do need to do is build back confidence in critical thinking and healthy skepticism. I do feel, and particularly in the UK, we've always been reasonably skeptical. We don't like to take things at face value. I would counter the fact that, yes, I think we're a little bit tired of the institution and of being told what to do and what not to do without much evidence to back it. But the last couple of surveys around public attitudes towards science and scientists have shown that the public do trust science, do trust scientists more than the scientists probably think they do. So one of the things we need to do as researchers is not start every conversation on the defence. I think we need to better contextualise the work that we're doing. I think we need to be better at communicating that and engaging with the public. Because ultimately, researchers are generally in a very privileged position that the work that they get to do is funded by the public. The public have every right to be a part of that in terms of how it's shaped, what research is done, and in terms of the consideration of how it's going to impact them. And so I do think greater involvement and understanding of the public with research is incredibly important. We are doing things to add a bit more value to that engagement, that dialogue, through things like research excellence exercises that are adding more value to engagement and impact. And also, I think, in trying to create better opportunities and platforms on which to engage. But I do think it is a real problem. I also think about the open science agenda. Lots and lots of research is written in incredibly obfuscatory language that is not accessible to scientists outside of that field, let alone the general public. But the whole point of publication was always to share knowledge so that others can build on it. And I don't think we do that very well. There is a real revolution to open science up so that we're reducing things like paywalls and things. And that is brilliant. But that also comes at a cost as well, because we do need to think about what we're publishing, how people can maybe cherry pick any sort of paper to bolster their particular agenda as well. So what I want is just critical thinking. I think. But everyone thinks they're critically thinking. That's the thing. Yeah. And it's like for every climate skeptic, 
will find their scientist in inverted commas. And it's like, well, how do you know? It's like, I mean, you know, because you're a scientist and you work in this. They hate science. Oh, science. We hate scientists. Oh, but we love science when it supports the thing that we believe. So everything just becomes really polarized along these kind of cultural and political it's lines. True. And it's really, it's. I don't know how we need to design some special gray goo that could just <laughs> end the universe and then we wouldn't have to worry about it. I don't know about gray goo, but I think a lot of tech can help. So again, one of the things that we've created, this is exactly where I was going. Algorithms are brilliant. So at Digital Science, we've created these trust markers and they are little aspects of research papers and publications that we can assess whether that research is trustworthy or not. So it'll be things like, is there a data availability statement is- But then you have to trust the algorithm though. You have to trust your research though. That's the problem because- You do have to. You have to trust it. And I think that's where you need transparency because you need to be held accountable for it. And you need to make sure that you have diverse enough teams that can genuinely understand, well, hang on a minute, we've left this out or this person's lived experience has not been included or that's not representative of this part of science. And so I think building things collaboratively and transparently and openly- for all, is how we'll get through this. But what we can't do is say you're wrong. What we need to do is create opportunities for engagement and give people the opportunity to empower people and help them understand if you want to know more, if you want to find out a bit more, these are ways that you can do it, but you're not wrong. It's just that this is what is at risk if we don't all engage with this appropriately. Yes, exactly that. We've gone slightly off I know, topic, sorry. But, I le- but it's really important. <laughs> but it, no, it's my fault. It's something that I think about a lot. I just want to end just, you've given us a lovely descriptions of nanotech and what it is and, and how it can help and et cetera. I did mention right at the top of this hour, we, I mentioned King Charles and Grey Goo. Just tell us what it was. I can't remember. He was worried that the, the universe was going to get swallowed up by nanobots or something. Yeah. I think the aspect of grey goo is, again, it's the lack of real understanding maybe of what nanomaterials maybe. No, I can't remember either. Hang on, I'm going to Google it now. Is it like a self-replicating thing? Oh, it's the bacteria-sized machines laying waste to the earth. Okay. It is the thing that we were imagining. So I suppose this is what's really frustrating, but if it is bacterial, we're not really on the nanoscale, we're more on the micro. Well, I suppose we're kind of on the nanoscale. All right, I'll take it. We're on the nanoscale. It just sounds good, grey goo. That was all. I was just like... (laughs) Yeah. I imagine the grey goo then that was pictured was this sort of blob-like mass that would just start to engulf everything in its path. And I think it's a bit of a shame because when things are unknown in that capacity... There isn't always a tendency to think positively. There is the fear, the the negative thought that comes with it. So I think that is a bit of a a shame. But I do think we're hopefully beyond the grey goo. I think nanotech has certainly captured people's imagination. You can see that I don't think there's been a movie that I've watched in the last five or six years that hasn't had a throwaway line about, oh, yeah, it's nanotech. Oh, all right, then. Fine. Really? Yeah. Maybe this is indicative of the kinds of movies I watch. I don't know. James Bond's <laughs> had it. Marvel I movies maybe had it. it is. <laughs> Richard Curtis, less so. But <laughs> Richard, oh, I might have some words with Richard Curtis. Get your royalties. Yeah. You mentioned that glass in the museum. Yeah. That Yeah. Have we got to a point where everything we make now is so, not one person could make it? It's so complicated that if we ever lose that knowledge of making, our civilization is built on a very kind of thin atomic layer of graphene. <laughs> well, if it was graphene, we'd be okay because it's strong. Yeah, maybe I just not feel yeah, a, a very a very friable glass. Proper scientific glass makers and glass blowers are becoming fewer and further between, but. Very much like the sort of telescopes for astronomy, the microscopes for nanotech, glassware for science is such a crucial part of what we're doing. And I think if that is such a dying art and if it's not appreciated and valued as much as it should be, why would people go into it? And so you have this skill that is dying off now. You can do amazing and intricate things with glass and with glassware that enable you to do 
groundbreaking science. And if we are losing that as an art form, and that is an example of one particular skill, but if we aren't appreciating and documenting these skills, it's a little bit like working for a company where everybody has their own expertise. And if there's a horrific accident, that's it. It's all gone. All that knowledge and all that skill is gone. I kind of counter what you're saying about can one person create everything? Do we need everybody? I think we do need to share responsibility for these things, but also just better appreciate. I have this big thing about technicians as well. And this is partly to do with being a Royal Society of Chemistry member. It's partly to do with being an RI trustee and a big fangirl of what they're doing there. But we must value the people that have all those skills that enable researchers to do the work that they're doing. And we really need to celebrate technicians and lab support people much more than we do, because really they're the ones that enable the good stuff to happen. I did an episode with Andrea Seller the other day. My old lecturer. Love him. Your old lecturer. Yeah. Yes. Honestly, I mentioned, oh yeah, glass. And he was like, that's four hours of Andrea chatting yes. about the invention. Of it. I mean, he's so knowledgeable about that. Honestly, I'm already imagining. Oh my God. We, we covered <laughs> it all. I don't know which episode's going out first, you or Andrea, but anyway, oh, there you go. Love it. I can't so wait I'm going to let you go because you've got better things to do than sit around. Not at all. Could do talking all to me. It's been lovely to talk. It's been lovely to chat about interesting things and the origins of interesting things and nice little connections between films that we like and science and it's always a great pleasure thank you it's lovely to speak to you too take care thank you very much to Suze thank you very much to you for listening thank you very much for your company I hope you enjoyed that episode I certainly did one of my favourites actually hope you're enjoying the series if you are don't forget to tell your friends don't forget to tell everyone, shout it from the highest rooftops. And of course, if you've got a suggestion for a topic you'd like us to cover, email us old school at patented at historyhit.com. I will see you next time. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code PATENTED at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.